Brian Buma is an associate professor in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Colorado, Denver, and he thinks about the planet and its climate a lot. And putting his curiosity to work, he's created The Atlas of a Changing Climate. It's a lush, hardback book filled with maps, graphs, and images that help take a really big concept, how Earth's ecological systems and winds and oceans and life are fully connected. And he makes that big concept understandable. We recently called Brian to ask about the new book. He told us his desire was to help us all understand how the world's climate works and how we can tell it's changing. So I've talked to a lot of folks uh, around the world about climate change. And when I'm talking to non-scientists, the thing that often comes up the most, the challenge that comes up with the most in terms of like comprehending how the, you know, how climate's changing and what a big deal it is, is the difficulty in relating your everyday experience at the scale of your house or your neighborhood or your backyard to the climate of the world, which is what's act, you know, which is what's changing. And so a big part of this book, which is over half maps and imagery um, of the world at large, um, a big point of that was communicating how the world works at the scale at which it works. So the goal was education. It wasn't to scare folks, really. It was, it was simply to tell folks, you know, this is, this is how the world works when we think about this, the entire climate system. And to do that, you really have to visualize it at that scale. So the, there's a lot of historical imagery in here because by looking at what folks were struggling with 150 years ago and how our view of broad scales started to emerge, you can see why it was a challenge to, to comprehend climate 150 years ago. You, we just couldn't see it. You know, it was just hard to relate weather to the world. And now we have an immense amount of resources, satellite imagery, uh, models, uh, just a lot of measurements from around the, from around the world. And I think it's beautiful. I think looking at the um, global climate system, like you're saying, the tides at the scale of the world or, or the westerlies or um, um, things like the Mississippi River at the scale of the whole Mississippi River, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous, but it also communicates how those things work. And once you understand that, then I think the, the science of climate change and the consequences of climate change become self-apparent and, and you don't need someone to tell you that this is a big deal. You can see that it's a big deal. Yeah, the historical maps, I don't know, give you this, and, and there are some from the 18th century, the 17th century, they give you this idea of the, the vast unknown, right? Because so much was unknown. But then right. you mentioned the westerlies, and there's a map in the first fourth of the book that includes the westerlies, the polar front, the horse latitudes, and this map makes it all seem like we're so much closer and everything in relation to itself does matter. Yeah, it's it's amazing what we can see now and they couldn't before. You know, 100, 120, 130 years ago when they were trying to figure out where hurricanes were, for example, they were relying on sporadic measurements that boats made when they were crossing the Atlantic. So they only had a couple measurements here or there you know, and some some guy was making that measurement on the deck of a boat tossed in the waves. You know, they, they were piecing together things from very sort of scattered observations. And now now we can see how these things work. And it's it's amazing. And the one thing that happens when you keep looking at these maps over and over again of how climate works is you realize we're, none of us are separate. We're all in this um, this same context. You know, the, the weather that hits me right now in Colorado is going to get to you guys in a 
in a couple days and, and or a couple hours sometimes. And, you know, we, we need to see that so that we can understand why, you know, for example, there might be a polar outbreak on the East coast, like why winter may have some extreme cold snaps. And that's not a reflection of, of something about climate science breaking down or something like that. That's a reflection of cold air getting displaced, like moving around. You know, one of my, one of the, one of the, um, impetuses for this book was, um, was quite a while ago, but got me thinking on this was in 2015 when, when Senator Inhofe brought a snowball onto the, onto the floor of Congress and said, you know, it's really cold outside. That means climate change is breaking down. And that was such a weird feeling for me because I was in Alaska, living in Alaska at the time, and it was incredibly warm. And so we're like wondering, where is our cold air gone? And it had, it had gone to DC. And just the idea that folks could conflate those two things um, when really it's just one extension of the other, you know, the cold air in one spot had gone somewhere else. We can visualize that. That map is in this book. We can see that happen. And, and so by looking at those things, we can, I, I hope folks get a better understanding of, all right, you know, this, this really is just one earth system. It's not weather here, weather there, it's, it's weather everywhere. The name of the book is the Atlas of a Changing Climate. One of the very first sentences in this book is one that kind of hit me as being something so obvious that I had never really thought about it, though. And you write, one of your most intimate relationships is with the atmosphere. And perhaps it's because we take the air about us often for granted. We don't think of it as a relationship. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I get it. I mean, people have busy lives. You just sort of don't see these things happening in the background. But but it's there, you know, it's there every day. And, and sometimes I think maybe that's, that's why it's hard to see climate changes because when you think about these slowly warming averages of temperature, well, you're sort of immersed in it all the time, but it's something we need to think about. It's something we need to be aware of. Like, where does your air come from? You know, what makes it warm? What makes it cold? You know, we're, we're living in it. And so we need to start you know, thinking more consciously about what we're doing to it. You know, it's a, it's a global pool, you know, and we're all swimming in it. So we better think about what we're putting into that water or air in this case. (laughs) One of my favorite chapters is about cities. And, and often I think when we think of environment or climate, we, we picture forests or maybe deserts or the ocean, but you make this point that cities, which have grown in 1800, there were three cities, urban areas that had 1 million or more people, by 2010, there were nearly 450. And one thing you point out is that not just what's happening in the cities, but what it takes to keep those cities going and the flow of of produce and food and other items to and from the city. Yeah, the cities chapter resonates with a lot of people, and I'm glad it's I'm glad it's interesting. I I don't see. I think it's um, it behooves us to think about cities not as separate or the urban system and humans not as separate from the rest of the world, but just as one more component of it. That it's a common uh, mistake folks think is that somehow we're, we're removed, you know, from the world around us because we can get around hot days with air conditioning or cold days with heat. But cities are really interesting. They're, they're essentially human created habitats. We've created this this landscape that serves our needs uh, as we've created them. And, and they are exploding, you know, over half the people in the world are moving or living in urban areas. Um, As you mentioned that, 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 that map of million cities uh, or more have increased, uh, you know, from three to 442 as of 2010, it's pretty stunning. Um, 
but and I'm not a big city person. I've always actually always lived in small cities or towns. Uh, but it's it, it's it's fascinating to think about the real footprint of a city because I do a lot of work in wilderness areas, and so you know every once in a while you'll fly. I'll fly over a big city or something. You see this like plop of concrete on the ground. And that's all well and good, but the, imagine that is only being the cities, of course, you know, very disingenuous. Like in the Midwest, you know, you have, you have cities, right? But, and you have a lot of farmlands, but that farmland is intimately connected to Los Angeles or New York or Miami, right? Like cities have to take energy from elsewhere and take in the form of food and they, and they distribute other things, usually in the form of information or entertainment or, you know, something else. So cities really do have their, tendrils everywhere, you know, and they're much bigger than the, than the, uh, than the land that they occupy. So they become a really interesting thing, right? Like it's not just, this is how a city works. It's like, this is how a city and the landscape that's connected to the city work. And now that it's global, now that the world is global, it's even more interesting, right? Because, um, you know, the tendrils of a city will reach across oceans. Like, um, you know, using a, using a computer the, to type this and pieces of it were pulled into manufacturing cities from all over the world. So it cities are a fascinating component that, and yet one more thing that we need to understand if we really want to think about how we're going to live on the planet in a sustainable fashion. One of my favorite maps in the Atlas of a Changing Climate is one that traces four different migratory routes, the monarch butterfly, the pronghorn, the Mexican free-tailed bat, and the sandhill crane. The sandhill crane goes from Mexico to damn near Siberia. It's amazing. Why did you choose this map and these four particular routes? Uh, well, these maps, so these maps actually came from a variety of sources. Right. Some of these were um, from, a lot of them are from National Geographic, and then many are from data visualization specialists, and some of them were commissioned for uh, specifically for this book. Um in, in the case of that map, which is uh, originally from National Geographic, the the point is showing how um, how how animals essentially, or some animals, migratory animals, move around to take advantage of seasonality on the planet. Like they're not migrating just for the fun of it. In some ways, they're migrating to keep a consistent um, consistent uh, set of conditions around them. You know, some of these things, like you're talking about uh, sandhill cranes and and many birds. If you think about it, they never experience winter, you know, they, which is a f bizarre thing to think about. But these birds essentially have an endless summer as they move around or an endless spring. They're sort of chasing those sorts of conditions. It's, a, it's kind of a lot like what we do. We, we, we pull stuff in to keep our cities sort of comfortable. We pull in, you know, food from Chile all the time or, you know, in the winter or we, you know, or from the southern hemisphere. So it's, it's kind of similar. So, so choosing these animals, um, was and it was uh, a way of showing that a lot of things do this. There's the free-tailed bat, you know. There's so there's a flying mammal. There's the butterfly. There's the pronghorn, and and a crane. So we have we have very different organisms, but they're all trying to live with variability. And these animals get around it by or get around the difficulties of a variable climate by moving. Um, we tend to get around it by pulling stuff to us. Um, but it's the same idea. It's it's just a very animal sort of thing to do. Um, so I thought they were wonderful examples, and it's an absolutely beautiful map. It really is. Um, two things that really stuck with me from this book. One, beetles. Beetles of all kinds really are sort of, I don't know, 
we can learn a lot about ourselves, our planet, and how it's changing by what beetles are doing and doing to other, uh, you know, living organisms. So beetles, and then number two, just sea rise and what that will cost in human experience and in in real money. So let's take beetles yeah. first. They're fascinating creatures that that are really sort of a, a harbinger of how the climate is changing. Yeah, certainly. So beetles are interesting as well because uh, for folks who have taken trips uh, to the mountains out west or to like uh, British Columbia and Canada, you've seen a lot of dead trees. Um, there are outbreaks constantly going on these days, and there are, there. Are, very interesting story because they're not they're not invasive they're a native species it's an example of a historical dynamic which has gone on for thousands of years which is now getting upended in um, surprising ways uh, by climate change so these beetles um, typically get by by uh, essentially attacking dead and dying trees um, they can they raise their young uh, while they lay their eggs inside the bark of dead and dying trees. And they target dead and dying trees because those can't fight back as well. Um, the way a tree fights back is it essentially pushes the beetle out with sap. Uh, and so um, only a tree that's sort of on its last legs is really is really a target because it won't be able to push the beetle out. It doesn't have enough sap flow. But if it, the temperatures get warm enough, these beetles start reproducing like crazy, uh, potentially more than once in a given year. And the populations explode. And all of a sudden, we've got 10,000 beetles attacking trees. And it doesn't matter how healthy this tree is, it cannot tolerate 10,000 little holes. And so all of a sudden, the population is big enough that green trees, like healthy trees, are a target. And that's what happened over the past couple of decades in Colorado, Wyoming, Washington, British Columbia, uh, and elsewhere in, in the mountains we have beetle populations so large that all of a sudden healthy trees, which didn't really used to ever be on the menu, are. And so we ha it is essentially a natural system gone haywire. So I, it is a great example of, of what climate change can do uh, to something that's just been sort of chugging along a natural sort of dynamic for a long time, where the beetles really benefit from the warmer temperatures, the trees suffer, and as a result, the beetles go nuts. Uh, and to, to sea level, that was one of the more interesting chapters to write because it's it's something that a lot of that, that makes the news from time to time, of course. But it really is this sort of ponderous thing which is happening in the background. It's a slow, inevitable thing that happens slow enough that it's below our radar a lot of the times. Um, you know, it's it's a time scale we're talking about decades, a um, couple inches, you know, every decade or an inch every decade. It doesn't sound like much, but it's such a, it's like a, it's like a gigantic battleship. We're not going to turn it around real quick. And so if you look around the world, you can pull out cities uh, where there are millions of people exposed in any city, in any given city, and trillions of assets exposed in any given city. Miami is the poster child, of course, uh, in the United States. The, the highest point in Miami-Dade Miami County is about six feet above sea level. And we're expecting one to four feet just in the next 67 years of rise and more past that. And we're locked into that. Like we've already put enough energy into the ocean, which is literally at the rate of atomic bombs per second in terms of the amount of energy we're putting on. We're just putting in a, a tremendous amount of energy into the ocean that that will happen kind of regardless of what we're doing. So now we're trying to mitigate <laughs> or slow 
slow the rise. There's other places though, um, Shanghai in China, um, for example, Mumbai, Calcutta. These these places have 10 million people exposed to sea level rise in each one of these places, and tr- like I said, trillions of assets. So the the slow rise of the ocean um, in any given spot, you can you can maybe ignore it, but then you step back and you look at the globe, you're like, holy smokes, there is just a lot of land here that is going to be under the under the ocean soon, or at least uh, heavily impacted during high tides and and storm surges. Yeah, so the the sea level situation can really only be appreciated with these big with these big maps. But once you once you do capture it, it's it's impressive. It's and real impressive. Of course, there are countries like Tuvalu and the Marshall Islands, which are facing going underwater. Yeah, yeah. possible extinction. Yeah, they're 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 quite literally. Uh, fighting for their for their homeland, uh, their lives, you know, and and it's kind of it, it's not kind of it is tragic that there are uh, whole peoples where their landscape is just going to disappear, and and so uh, you know these are things that are you know equity issues and and simply things that we have to pay attention to. Other sovereign nations are li- literally going underwater. You know, we'll lose Florida or parts of parts of the coast of Florida, for example, but they're going to lose essentially everything. Um, and that's actually one of the, one of the sadder cases near the end of the text. Um, and again, the, the point of this book is not really to be alarmist. It's to explain how things work and let people draw their own conclusions, but you inevitably have to talk about consequences. And the first like known or the first extinction we can confidently say was climate change and climate change only um, actually is a result of sea level rise. Um, and I should step back and say, there's lots of animals that have, have where we have a very high rate of extinction right now, but being scientists are generally very conservative people in the sense of, you don't want to claim something that hasn't happened. And so Anytime there's an extinction, often it's like, well, it was deforestation and climate change, or it was this and climate change. Well, there's this um, this small rodent creature called the Bramble K. melamese, which is just north of Australia, and it is it is essentially the first documented extinction which has no uh, no other cause at all. We like we this is this is climate change. It'll be the first of many, but there's the the one that we cannot say. Was anything else? It was just climate change. It was a small rodent that lived on a a key or a key, like a small sandbar island, north of Australia. And nobody lives, you know, nobody goes there. It's uh, it's just this this island. There's no human impact to it, uh, uh, really. And and folks had gone back and forth every once in a while to monitor the island. But uh, as the sea level has risen in that area, uh, the the shoreline was just eaten away a little bit and a little bit. And then there's a series of really strong storms, which probably swept uh, completely over the island, you know, storm surge rate, sea level, and, and it's gone. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't, we can't blame that on anything else except for sea level rise. And that is occurring because of climate change. You write toward the end of the book that you can come away with this book, uh, reading stories of adaptability, be it a tree or a beetle or, or some other species, and think, hey, you know, over the eons, Things have evolved. There's hope, or you can come away complete or 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 very very concerned, perhaps edging towards worry. And I'm wondering, do you fall somewhere in between there when you think about the future? 
Yeah, I think I'm by uh, sort of of two minds. <laughs> I, you know, the the book is meant to be essentially educational. There are a lot of things to be alarmed about, whereas I'm here just trying to explain how things work. Um, so at times you look at this and yeah, especially the sea level rise, because it's so we're locked into so much of it already. It is hard to be optimistic, but I don't think you can do things like this without having a little bit of optimism in there as well. Um, you know, we can't just sit down in despair uh, because that's not going to solve anything. And so uh, I also have very much an optimistic side. And, and I, I think there's evidence for that. There's reason to be optimistic. One was COVID. The uh, folks have been calling it the anthropos. Uh, at least in the scientific community, <laughs> uh, you know, in the sense that people sort of stopped doing stuff for a year. And I think everyone was surprised at how quickly uh, environmental systems bounced back, you know, um, like Venice, like uh, dolphins in the canals in Venice and uh, air quality improved so, so quickly in many urban areas. I, I think that gave a lot of folks a lot of hope that these systems really are resilience. And the other reason um, to be optimistic is just human human ingenuity. You know, there's a lot of things standing in the way in the way of that. You know, there's developing countries that obviously want a better standard of life and their only model is a fossil fuel intensive one. But, you know, there's there's also a lot of push towards um, clever technology, people changing their behavior willingly, um, government pushes like COP26, and then um, the youth with uh, more organized protests at COP26. Like, there's just a lot of energy around this, and a lot of clever folks thinking about it. The world's largest carbon capture um, station came online in Iceland just a few months ago. So, there is a lot to be alarmed about, um, and and we're past the point of causing impacts. It's not like we're let's just stop this and reverse it. No, we're we're already committed to a lot of problems, and we've already lost like the Bramble K. Melamies, for example. We've already had people dying um, in heat waves. Um, the Midwest, where you are, is going to get a lot more floods. There's get, already has a lot more floods, and it's going to continue to get more floods. So there's a lot to be alarmed about, and um, unfortunately, we've already lost a lot of stuff. We've passed many points of no return. You know, We're on a spectrum of impacts. But there's a lot of reason to be optimistic that we will turn some things around as well because people do care and and i honestly think that once people start to understand how this stuff works it'll become more real to them and um, they can you know act appropriately ryan buma's new book is the atlas of a changing climate it's published by timber press we talked with him earlier this fall 